Hello. If you listen carefully, you can probably hear some birdsong in the background. Yep, there it is. You might also be able to hear the sound of a lawnmower cutting the grass around the new agriculturist office. Unfortunately, you won't be able to hear the sound I'd like you to. That you'll just have to imagine. It's the sound of waves lapping the shore on one of the world's tropical coastlines. Coastal livelihoods are the latest focus-on theme in New Agriculturist. And in this podcast, I'll be picking up on the importance of listening to some people whose voices perhaps aren't usually heard. One example in the focus-on section comes from Zanzibar and a seaweed farmer's cluster initiative. The article's written by Tembi Much, who went to Page on Zanzibar's beautiful east coast. There she met Dr Flower Msuya of the Institute of Marine Sciences, who in recent years has been working to give local seaweed farmers a voice and to break down some of the barriers between farmers, the government and those who decide seaweed prices on this beautiful small island. Dr Flower explains more to Tembi about what the project's been doing. This project here in Paje and also the Seaweed Cluster Initiative, our aim is to break the barrier, the barrier between seaweed farmers and exporters, seaweed farmers and the government. All these kind of barriers need to be broken so that people can actually collaborate directly. And this way the farmers can have also a say when it comes to the seaweed prices or selling of the products that they have. What are the barriers between the seaweed farmers and the government? Sometimes it's not easy for a farmer in the village to go directly to the ministry and say I have this problem about the seaweed prices. But through the, cluster, the seaweed cluster initiative, it means that the farmer is sitting in the same room with the government people, sitting in the same room with the seaweed buyers, so they are actually exchanging ideas in one room and farmers can air whatever they think is best for them. I'd like to ask you quite a sensitive question, Dr. Flower. Socially, here in, in Tanzania and Zanzibar, we have a class system. So the person who has the education is treated very differently from the person who is a farmer. Uh, what you are saying, <laughs> what you are saying is, is, is true in a way that uh, I'm a scientist, flower, Dr. Flower. I mean, I feel different from someone who is in the village. But when you come to the idea of working with people, bringing them together, it's you as a scientist, is you who from the government, who should think of a way to interact directly with this seaweed farmer, with this person, for example, in Paje. Let them feel that they are part of you. So this is exactly what is happening in the Seaweed Cluster Initiative because the government person will be there and the farmer will be there and we are trying to actually bring these people together. You're very different. Where, where do you get this from? Where is this from? You're very, very different from most, most educated scientists. <laughs> Why? How come? How come? When I work with the people, I don't see myself as a different person. I see myself as one of them and because they have accepted me as one of them and we work together. This gives me courage, this gives me ideas of how to work with these people together. Dr Flower Msuya talking to Tembi Much. And you can find out more from Tembi's article in the Focus on Coastal Livelihoods in the latest edition of New Agriculturist. In the Gambia, oyster farming is an important source of livelihood for women in the Banjul area. They collect oysters in wetlands near the capital and sell them on the roadsides or in local markets. But while oysters fetch a high price here in the UK, in the Gambia the price the women earn is very low. And there's also an environmental problem with the wild harvesting, which is threatening the ecology in the mangroves where the women collect them. So how can this coastal livelihood be made sustainable and generate a decent income for the women? 
Getting their voices heard is certainly part of the picture. And that's been achieved by over 500 of these oyster women from different communities coming together to form an association. Leading that activity has been Fatu Janha, and she talks now to Ismaila Senghor about what she's been doing and the progress the women have made. We are now doing aquaculture, that's farming oysters. Because before, the women used to go wild in the mangroves looking for oysters. So now, what we, what we have done is we are training them so that they can have improved method of getting the oysters. So they don't have to disturb the mangroves. As you know, Gambia, 4% of the Gambia is made of mangroves. If there is any disaster, may God forbid, it's the mangroves that will protect us. That is where the nursery ground is for small species, like the f small fishes and shrimps. They all nurse there before they go into the sea. So we don't want them to touch the mangroves, we want to preserve the mangroves so that we will do this aquaculture near the mangroves so that they will still do their oysters at the same time avoid messing with the nursery grounds. Another thing we are doing is that we are trying to train them on food hygiene and safety so that they will understand what it means when they sell oysters that's not good, how they can poison the whole community. And then before, these oyster women, they were very timid because people didn't care much about them. So they were used to that. They were left to fend for themselves, for themselves on their own. So when wife bought them out, now they go out, they have confidence in themselves, they walk to the bank, they have their savings accounts, they walk to the bank and save money, they go to um, functions, they speak out when they need to speak. This was not there before. And now I'm very happy we have achieved that. They have confidence in themselves, they can stand anywhere and talk, and people will listen to them, and they know what they are saying. They form themselves into a committee, and they have committee members from different communities. So that is our achievement. They have a president. I understand you have up to 500 members now. We have 500 members and we have a committee. We have a president, vice president, secretary, vice secretary, treasurer. All these are from them. In the clips we've heard so far, the seaweed farmers in Zanzibar and the oyster collectors in the Gambia are both perceived in their society as low status people. And to get their voices heard, they've had to have their confidence built and it's required a major effort. Tanya Lee, one of the contributors to this edition's Points of View in New Agriculturist, is also a firm believer that the voices and the rights of the poor in society have to be both respected and safeguarded in the context of land deals. There are many who hope that the kind of land deals currently being done where foreign interests are buying long-term leases to large parcels of land could be indeed win-win situations benefiting both their countries and the local people. But Tanya Lee, who's a professor at the University of Ontario, is sceptical. From looking at the history of large-scale agriculture in Africa and more widely in the developing world, she's not at all convinced that there's evidence that these new land deals really will address poverty. She speaks now to new agriculturist Olivia Schweer. This is not new. We have a whole lot of experience of what large-scale land development looks like, and it has never been good for the poor. It's always been poverty-producing. So any argument which suggests that it's poverty-reducing is just not based on any evidence, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So what needs to be done to protect rural communities against these deals? I think um, one thing would be to examine very carefully the rationale. Like when something is sold and local governments are very attracted, they're told this will create jobs, this will bring development and infrastructure and so on. These claims need to be um, scrutinized very carefully. Like how many jobs? Actually, how many jobs? At what level of skill? And how? 
what's the ratio between the livelihoods lost and the new jobs gained? So that kind of calculation about what's being given up in relation to what kind of return, I think if that was done, it would be palpably obvious that rationales like you know poverty reduction or development just wouldn't hold in many cases. So that kind of transparency of information, like really asking the hard-hitting questions. What was really interesting to me in, in some of the responses, uh, particularly the one by the World Bank, is that it came back to, well, governments ought to be responsible for the welfare of their populations. Well, in an ideal world, of course that's true. But if one looks at the actual relationship between the parties claiming to govern and the populations over whom they hold these kinds of powers, it's not the benevolent, orderly, responsible thing one might imagine, right? So this kind of fantasy that you have governments who, of course, would have the welfare of the populations at heart, this isn't the real world. And so to develop guidelines, which basically come down to, and at the end of the day, it's the government's responsibility to protect their populations, like that's a fantasy of a kind of government, which in many of these contexts does not exist, right? So in, in that context, guidelines are not at all enough, right? Because they, they assume a set of social forces which are not present. And that was Professor Tanya Lee from the University of Ontario. She certainly got a strong position on the whole question of whether the current spate of land deals in the developing world really do represent a development opportunity or are just another example of land grabbing. But to get a wider range of opinions, go to the points of view section. And that brings an end to this podcast. I hope you found it interesting listening to the three voices we've heard and that they've encouraged you to look deeper into the latest edition of New Agriculturist. So from me, Mike Davison, bye for now.